Hello there and welcome to our Over Our Garden Mall music podcast. The full podcast, including all songs chosen by Scottish musician and entrepreneur Douglas McIntyre, can be heard on Spotify. Search Over Our Garden Mall. However, if you can't access Spotify, this is a copy of all the chat from the podcast. You can, of course, listen to Douglas' songs on Apple Music too, just not in this podcast. Apologies for this and hopefully one day we can publish in full on Apple as we do on Spotify. Enjoy and stay safe. Hello there and welcome to our latest episode of Over Our Garden Mall, a music podcast that is setting out to establish, if possible, what the best year for popular music was. To help us do that, we will be joined by a special guest on each episode who will nominate the favourite year and provide a playlist of songs from that year, which we'll listen to, discuss and no doubt debate. I'm Brian Davidson and I'm joined today by my co-host and neighbour, MD. How are you doing, mate? Hi there, I'm good. Glad you're with us. <laughs> and more importantly, today's guest, Douglas McIntyre. Hi, how are you doing? Yeah, great, mate, great. Douglas is an experienced and well-respected musician who has recorded and played live with a number of Scottish bands. He is also the creator of the Creeping Bent organisation, an independent record label set up in 1994, which has been described as a successor to earlier Scottish indie labels, Postcard Records and Fast Product. Douglas is also the person behind Fretz Creative and Fretz Concerts, both of which currently play an important part supporting the Scottish arts and music sector and I had the pleasure of attending a great Fretz concert during Celtic Connections. Douglas, how are you doing, mate? Thanks very much for joining my podcast today. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. It's always good to have a chat about music. Absolutely. And we're really looking forward to playing some of the tunes you've chosen from your nominated year, which is? 1976. 1976. We have had some fantastic years and guests already, all making a case for their, their year being the best and your 1976 playlist looks the business too. So, intro's over, let's play your first selection from the album Jailbreak. This is the power rock of Thin Lizzy with the boys back in town. That was the classic, the boys are back in town, and a great way to start this 1976 podcast. So, let's get stuck into the discussion, Douglas. Why 1976? Uh, 1976 was, I guess it was a kind of, pivotal year I was at secondary school and uh, I, I, I was really into music at that point you know I was already into like uh, sensational Alex Harvey band and you know Bowie all that kind of stuff but it, I was really intrigued by the idea of, of punk I, you know used to buy all the music papers so you know they were beginning to talk a lot about the pistols and the clash and the buzzcocks so that was really intriguing and you you could actually feel, even as a you know a, a kid at school, you could feel something was about to happen. So, uh, so that's why I, I think it's a really pivotal year in the way that music developed. But I didn't want to just choose tracks that highlighted the, you know, the coming wave of of punk. I wanted to also show some of the great records that were around that time and the diversity, you know, of music. Uh, and I guess it's just the AGR, isn't it? You know, the AGR was that. I just really was, um, you know, my receptors were totally open to to music. So, uh, and Thin Lizzy were just, just uh, they were always getting played at parties and stravens. So that's probably how I kind of started getting into them. Very good. And uh, what were you doing in 76? We ask all our guests this, and it's been a slightly delicate question mm-hmm. for some of them. But um, what were you doing? What was I doing? What age would I have been? Was I f- 14, I think? Uh, so I was probably, I was just beginning to play the guitar and get into being in a band, you know, bands at school and mucking about with guitars, um, you know, 
going to see Hamilton Aki's too much for anyone's <laughs> health, I think. Uh, yeah, I can sympathise with that as a Morton supporter. Yeah, and, you know, no. underage drinking obviously was part of that whole thing that happens, I guess, and parties and just beginning to get into all that stuff. Yeah, and was there any other years that you considered other than 76? I tell you, I think you could pick any year at any time and you would find you know if you could tie it into your life and there's there's great music in every year you know there's great music still being made just now as should guys know but i just felt that was for me quite pivotal because it felt like right i'm 14 what the hell am i going to do started playing the guitar so it kind of focused in and uh you know when i really started learning the guitar i guess yeah, and and how hard was it to then pick the group of songs from that year? Did you have a lot to choose from, or was it quite easy to get most of them in? Or? I found it quite difficult, but what I tried to do is just choose lots of different genres because I've always had really Catholic taste. I've always been, mm. you know, I mean, I remember, since we're talking about school and punk, I remember when the Pistols album came out, Never Mind the Bollocks, there was a mm. wee record shop in Straven with the brilliant name The Flat Spin, and I went in there and I bought Never Made the Bollocks and I think it was the first Chic album on the same day. And, you know, all my punk pals were like, you're a traitor. It's like, I don't care. I don't care if I'm a traitor, you know. So I've always, I've always, uh, you know, you know, there's good and there's bad and everything, so. Yeah, absolutely. I got a really hard time in one of the other podcasts for um, going to see Rush Mm-hmm. at the Apollo and then the next night I went to see Stiff Little Fingers uh-huh. um, with my Rush t-shirt on uh-huh. uh, which didn't go down particularly well I might, I might add well I can, um, I can imagine yeah. yeah absolutely and you, you mentioned uh, Thin Lizzy and that was a kind of a song that was about mm-hmm. um, so was that your kind of intro to them or were you aware of them before that or? that's kind of because I was always listening to the radio and listening to the charts you know like from a really young age I was aware of Whiskey in the Jar you know which was, was, a, was a hit single probably saw it on top of the pops and uh it was really jailbreak was the big album because mm-hmm. it was kind of friends and friends dads had that album and uh, so so that was really the key and i remember going to see them with apollo uh that was probably a few years after jailbreak who, who broke big but it was still the classic lineup and uh mm-hmm. They were just such a fantastic live band. They're incredible. Yeah, and I think in Jailbreak, the maybe the first record they got that that you know the Thin Lizzy sound, the yeah. dual guitar leads. That was the one where it all came together, I guess. Because um, they had a fairly bumpy landing, didn't they? they? You know, they as most bands do, they kicked about for a while. Didn't, yeah, you know, didn't quite find their feet. Didn't get got a recording contract. Didn't sell many records. All, all the usual story, you know. So. Yeah, and I mean a lot of those early albums again, just through being friendly with uh, your people's, uh, you know, dads had some of those, you know, early albums when they were developing their sound, and it was quite a quite kind of Celtic folk sort of rock type thing. Mm. It, it was it was still finding its way. I think it was really when they got the the twin guitar thing going that's really when they, they they managed to find a direction and some guitarists say eh, over the the course of their, their their band career they've had some amazing guys on there yeah and you know phil Lynott's such a great songwriter you know the i suppose the caricature of phil Lynott's this really cool kind of macho guy but in actual fact he's really a tender songwriter i think and mm-hmm. you know he does all the 
the boys are back in town type stuff. That's that's a good laugh. But he's he's probably he's most effective when he's singing something that's kind of quite tender. I think. Yeah, I think he'd created this this kind of hard veneer, didn't he? But you know, I'm guessing growing up in Ireland, you know, in seventies and being black and you know trying to forage a career, it couldn't have been the easiest thing to do. I don't think. No, I think um, he's, he's you know, but uh, really um, amazing character. Yeah, and it, it actually done very well as well. I, I was surprised. I knew it charted in the UK, but it, it was top. I think it was twelve or something. It got to in the US because they were um, they were gigging over there for fun. Yeah, um, yeah, and they they kind of got on the back of some big big guys that were playing. They supported Boston and you know big bands like that, and I guess managed to reach an audience through through those gigs as well. So um, I think they were one of these bands that you know obviously did a lot of uh, misfortunes befell them. When they were just about to really go up to the next level, something always seemed to happen that meant they had to pull a tour when they were ready to break in America. And, and that happened a couple of times, but that's that's rock and roll, you know. It, it does. The, the, one, uh, the other thing I picked up was that I actually won Best Single of the Year uh, on the NME that year. Yeah. Which um, I was a wee bit surprised about, to be honest, mm-hmm. but um, but yeah, well deserved, I think. Yeah, they were a big favourite, I think, with uh, you know, like people like Charles Shar Murray and Tony Parsons, mm-hmm. who was obviously viewed as being the young sort of punk gunslinger writer. I mean, they all really loved Thin Lizzy. Yeah, because they had that attitude, didn't they? And I think when when they, I don't know we're going to talk about punk a bit later, but uh, they managed to ride the punk with Billy Motorhead, didn't they? Because they had that sort of punk attitude that. Didn't alienate them from the the changing music or the changing audience, I guess, that happened in the in the late seventies with punk. Yeah, and the good songs, you know, that's the thing. You know, they, there's not that much difference between, you know, apart from the the dual lead part. If you listen to the Pistols, Steve Jones guitar playing when he's blocking out chords, it's not that much. It's not that far removed from the boys are back in town, really. Yeah, very true. Very true. Uh, I, I I remember Jailbreak well. I remember the Live and Dangerous live album more I think that was maybe a couple of years later maybe that came out yeah and uh, and that was everywhere like and I mean everywhere and um, and it's funny I had it on a couple of days ago knowing that you'd, you'd picked the song Douglas and I was listening to it and I was listening to Dancing in the Moonlight oh yeah uh-huh. which was fine I was sort of listening to it and yeah. singing away and I was actually thinking I wonder if they'll they'll do the saxophone solo or whether it would be like a guitar solo live or whatever. I couldn't really remember what they'd done, but it, it does have a sax solo on it. And mm. it was actually um, done by a guy called John Errol. All right. Who was in the Graham Parker in the rumour. Oh, really? Yeah, I didn't know he was, that. He was in the horn section for the rumour. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Which I know we'll, we'll touch on as well. And uh-huh. um, it just shows you how all these uh, bands and genres come together. Yeah. So, um, yeah, to, to pleasantly surprise you, I guess. And uh, and he passed. He was only thirty six when he passed. For I know it's very sad story, you know. I suppose he's left his legacy. Maybe. You yeah. Know, you die young. You you kind of you go out. You get a bang, don't you? You know. Well, if you if you you know, I mean, I guess anybody that's in a band, you know, you you'll always be, you know, remembered by the records you've released to a certain extent in terms of the public. So he's mm. he's left some great records. He has me, some crackers. Okay then, so we're up and running, and we're moving from a rock legend to, I guess, a legend, full stop. Um, your next selection is Golden Years from David Bowie, and you just mentioned earlier on there, big fan? Massive, 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 massive fan of Bowie, yeah. 
So obviously it's easy to justify picking it, but um, but why this one from the record? Was there any others you considered, or was this your standout? Or well, I mean, I I really love uh, Station to Station. You know, in in real time, I kind of got you know I was into Bowie from from them being in the singles charts and you know with uh, your Gene Genie and tracks like that, and uh, I think the first Bowie album I got was uh, Aladdin Sane. And the Diamond Dogs, but I remember, you know, I kind of knew those albums before I bought them. So the first mm-hmm. Bowie album I actually heard, be- you know, it was probably the day of release. It was, um, you know, like a, 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 you know, a friend had bought it, so we kind of rushed down, you know, at lunchtime at school to hear it. Nobody had heard yep. it yet, and of course, we put it on at the wrong speed. You know, like station to station, which starts, you know, with the, you know, the train <laughs> kind of synthetic train sounds. And it was going at twice the speed of the, at 45. And I was like, this is amazing. Bowie, Bowie's just gone in a whole new direction because there's about a couple of minutes before the singing comes in. Yeah. And I was like, this is it. He's just, he's, he's done it again. And the vocal comes in like Pinky and Perky, you know, so it was... Um, uh, yeah, but, he's good. He's not that good. Uh, <laughs> but it's, it's, a, it's a great record. And I think... You know, there's obviously loads of good songs on that album, but probably with Golden Years, another thing that happened that year was I I was I had men in I caught meningitis, so I was in the hospital for a wee while. And a and I just remember, you know, if you've uh, if in the seventies, if you'd ever been in the hospital or visited anyone, you used to get those wee white kind of earphones and it would be hospital radio that would be on. So it's yep. pretty rubbish. And yet, I mean, I was in for, I don't know, a month or something like that. And you'd just be like listening to absolute rubbish. And then suddenly it'd be like Bowie would come on. So although yep. you're ill, it just kind of really lifted your <laughs> your spirits, you know. So that was that was a, a that I'll always remember. Every time I hear that record, it kind of takes me back to, you know, that time. And the story goes that he wrote it for Elvis Presley. Yeah, I, I know that. Uh, yeah. I know he wrote one of the songs in that album. So was it Golden Years? Yeah, it was Golden Years. Ah. Yeah, and um, and and obviously Presley rejected it for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. Um, which obviously why he's recorded it. But when you then hear it, you can kind of hear him putting a couple of those kind of Presleyisms, if you want, into the the singing. You know, it's, it, it, I'm sure Presley would have smashed it if he'd had a go at it. You know, that'd have been interesting, wouldn't it? Yeah. It would, yeah. And he came off, the other thing I didn't realise about the timing was that it, it obviously was after Young American, so he'd had the number one with fame um, in America and, and, and big in the UK as well. And then he'd had number one with Space Oddity in the UK as the re-release. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was the kind of next single that came after those two. So he, I guess he's kind of, his commercial profile was probably never, never higher. Yeah, and, yeah. and there, there were elements of that album I felt that, that it's a funny, it's, I mean, all of his albums are quite unique, but that one felt strange because it had taken this a plastic soul thing he was doing with Young Americans, but there was also a, a new sort of European influence coming in, you know, and it, it kind of managed to merge both of them. It's it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting record, you know. Yeah, I saw in one of the reviews, I think they called it Ice Funk. Right, good. I can go with that. Ice funk. Just, yeah, which I kind of, yeah, I kind of don't know what it means, but I kind of, yeah, kind of mm. get that. Um, and the other thing I picked up was that he, you know, he obviously he struggled a bit with the record because he 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 was in a bit of a bad place himself, wasn't he, at the mm. time? 
and after it was recorded and released, and he then went to tour it, and he said it was like learning the songs again, because mm-hmm. he, he didn't remember recording any of the songs. Yeah. He didn't even remember being in the Los Angeles to record the album, which yeah. just beggars belief, really, doesn't it? Well, there was that great BBC Arena documentary, Cracked Actor, which I don't know if that was 76 or maybe the year before that was shown first time in the BBC. But again, that was a big deal at school. Everybody you know, that was into music stayed up and watched it. And Bowie was in the absolute height of his disconnected LA uh, experience. He was just, uh, you know, he was somewhere else. He was, he was, he was on like, Mars. He was like the guy who was playing in the film, wasn't he? Absolutely, um, yeah. He was always, almost in character. You know, I think that's why Nick Rowe gave him the, the you know, the, the, the main the lead for The Man Who Fell to Earth because he, he saw him in the Cracked Actor documentary and he was like, that's it. That's that's the guy. That's who I need to play the role. Yeah, and he wasn't wrong. Was and, and more importantly, putting all that to one side, have you heard the version that Peter Glaze and, and Jan Hunt did <laughs> on Cracker Jack? Yeah, I used to <laughs> fondly watch Cracker Jack and watch them destroy uh... a whole... Plethora <laughs> of my favourite records. I'm sure he wasn't watching it, but if he was, um, you know, he'd probably have smiled, wouldn't he? I guess. I would. I think he would. <laughs> uh, it, it, it got fantastic reviews. I did pick up one review from a guy called Dave Marsh, who was actually quite a, a big guy, uh, Rolling Stone, and um, he ended up uh, being part of Springsteen's kind of entourage and stuff, didn't he? But he, um, he had the right go at it. He, uh, he was very negative. He called it. I'll get the quote here. The most significant advance in LP fillers since Lou Reed's Metal Machine music. There you go. Can't please everyone all the time, can oh, you? Goodness me, you know, yeah. you know, you're trying your hardest here. Do you think, um, you know, that kind of mid to late seventies Bowie did that parade into the Scottish music scene? So you get into you know post punk early eighties and yeah. on. Can can you hear that coming through? Absolutely. I mean, everyone I know who's in a band from the post-punk period afterwards, absolutely everyone is a total bowie nut, you know. Um, and I think I think all the different phases. I mean, that's what's so un, you know, incredible about his his seventies uh, catalogue. Every record is totally different from the you know from the previous one. He just rips it up and he does something completely new, you know. Yeah. Uh, I think when he, when Graham Skinner was on, he picked seventy four. And I think he picked a song from Diamond Dogs then, mm-hmm. I guess. And he said he'd sort of revisited his um his full collection after he passed away. Mm-hmm. And he kind of kept reordering the, the kind of which one was his favourites. And they said that literally every time he played them, one would move up to the top or move down a little bit because it, it kind of depended on the mood you were in and yeah. um, what kind of music you were, you were looking for at that point because he gives you every option really, doesn't he? Yeah, I mean, I do that all the time. It's like well, my favourite Bowie album from from that period, just that golden kind of seventies period. It changes all the time. I mean, they're all great. Yeah, yeah. And this kind of bridged them, I guess, didn't it? From the kind of I call it rock, for want of a better word, into the kind of electronic stuff that he, he done with the next um, three records. You can feel the the two bits in in the record that kind of pushing together a little bit, aren't they? So yeah, you can see him yeah. taking it in that direction. I think. You can, absolutely. Will we, um, we'll give it a play? Give it a play. So from the album Station to Station, uh, reach number eight in the UK and ten in the US, this is Golden Years by David Bowie. Cracking. I've just realised something. 
Um, obviously, within three each year, as may be dead aware of what singles come out. 1978, I was nine years old, and that was the year I really first started to listen music because Saturday Swap Shop, Kate Bush, uh, Blondie, Denise came out, but Racy, come on, baby, lay your love on me. That was 1978 as well. Boney M was. 76, 76, McD. What are you? Oh, sorry, I've got the year from. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> Douglas, that's what I'm up against, mate. <laughs> <laughs> I've been standing on the premises since 1976. You mentioned 1976 when I walked in at one point. Uh, seven, uh, 76. Oh, forget everything I just said. I was uh, seven. So that was the genius of David Bowie. He was a big artist in 76 with chart-topping records, but he didn't quite make the best-selling lists in the UK. So what I've dug out, Douglas, is I've done the top five or so selling singles in the UK and also top five or so best-selling albums um, just to give you a feel for what was I guess what was smashing it at the time and we'll do some best of lists a little bit later where it's kind of critic stuff rather than sales if that's okay okay so I'll do the singles first five these are all belters by the way five was uh, Elton John Kiki D don't go breaking my heart mm-hmm, good uh, yeah you remember the video very well yeah <laughs> dumb gurries <laughs> Dungarees with a big red heart thing yep. on the yep. uh, on the front. Uh, four was Abba with Fernando. Okay. Uh, three was Chicago. If you leave me now. Good, like that one. Yeah, classic. Two was Bohemian Rhapsody, Queen. Excellent. And number one was Back to Abba again uh, with Dancing Queen. All right, mm-hmm. which was kind of everywhere, I guess, in '76. If um, yeah, you know, um, you're about because it was that hot summer thing as well, wasn't it? That was the yeah, yeah. I yeah. mean, but, yeah, it definitely was. And I mean, some of those records, you know, um, I mean, Apple was one of these bands. I just found it hard to take to. I like them better now, actually, if I hear them. But probably it, it was just so popular you couldn't escape it. And you know, when you're that age, you're kind of wanting to dig deeper than just what you're hearing all the time on the radio but you know yeah. great records yeah they are you're right I, I remember watching them I always enjoyed hearing them more when I was watching them if that makes sense mm-hmm. being mm-hmm. like I think I was 11 or something at the time so that would make sense uh, it, <laughs> absolutely okay so that was the singles um, you can imagine the albums uh, there's a little bit of a kind of overlap so top five were uh, Glenn Campbell's 20 Golden Greats number five good excellent some some belters on there. Uh, four was a night on the town. Ross Stewart. Uh, three was Demi's Russos forever and ever. Mm-hmm. You didn't have a copy of that, Douglas? Did you? I would like to pretend I did have a copy of it, but sadly, I didn't <laughs> have a copy of that. No. I can see that being big and straving on a on a Saturday night. I'm sure it is. Tell me, Nana McSpeary's in there. <laughs> no, Nana's not in here. That must have been another year. Um well, sure she'll pop up somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> One of your seventy eights, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Two was the Beach Boys, twenty Golden Greats. Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah absolute killers on there. And back to Abba again. Uh, their greatest hits kind of volume one, I guess, uh-huh. which it became was um was was the top one. It's interesting, I mean that they are they're sort of fairly big and, and you know, lots of best of and stuff in there, but I had a, a wee look further down, so uh, eight was A Night at the Opera Queen, 
uh, nine was Desire, Bob Dylan. All right, yeah, uh-huh. Um, was surprised about the, to be in the best sellers, and ten was um, Wings at the Speed of Sound um, by Wings. So yeah. you can it's, you can feel it just starting to stretch a little bit. Mm-hmm. Rather than just having the sort of you know the big best of and stuff at, at the top. Yeah, I think um, I think Desire was maybe the first Dylan album I heard because you just like you're saying a lot of people seemed to have it at that point. So you mm-hmm. go into people's house and they had you know their big brothers had Desire. So uh, and I I kind of really got into it. actually. I loved um, Hurricane, you know the first the mm-hmm. first track. So it's, um, yeah, it kind of got me into Dylan actually. And it probably suggests you touched on this earlier about seventy six being a bit of a sort of jumping off point for music starting to change, but kind of on the surface looks a bit status quo thing, doesn't it? Really, you know, it's a lot of those bands are bigger, been around for for kind of quite a long time. But when you had a quick look kind of under the waterline, mm-hmm. I had a, a look at the bands that were formed in seventy six, and it's um, it's kind of who's who, isn't it? So I've uh, what I've got seven or eight here. Get Elvis Costello and the Attractions, uh, Buzzcocks, Jam, Clash, Cure, Damned, Generation X, Mad- Madness, uh, UK Subs. Mm-hmm. You know, so those bands all they all burst in '76, and obviously by the end of the year and into '77, it, it kind of all changed, hadn't it? But yeah, just shows you how quickly um, how quickly things can change. Well, I think particularly that. You know, one of the reasons I chose '76 uh, was, you know, it was such a pivotal year uh, where things changed. And I mean, I guess you know a lot of people think the same thing about 1967 with, you know, flower power and what have you. And then I suppose moving into the, you know, when the '80s moved into the '90s when you had, you know, Acid House, that felt like a really important change as well. So, uh, but it's a funny thing, you know, just when you're buying at that age. Uh, you know, and you're really you kind of antennae are up, and you're you're feeding into all the cultural changes. You, you actually were aware, you know, even as a fourteen year old, it was aware that there's something changing here, mm. and it did feel quite, uh, you know, the following year probably more so when it really kicked in. But punk did feel quite uh, Stalinist. It did feel like out with the past, you know, and we've all got our little red books and we're moving year zero, with, uh, year zero, totally, yeah. Yeah, and I guess we would all maybe all remember, uh, certainly um, you and I, Douglas, maybe going to school, kind of youth clubs or things like that, and then starting to hear some of these songs come on versus what would have been played before that at that age. And uh, as, as uh, Mady says, it almost was because stuff you'd never, your ears had never heard anything like it, you know. So we'll, we'll maybe come on to that because obviously we'll get into one of your your selections as well. But you can see that that change is happening, isn't it? It's just not quite broken through yet. And- yeah. In '76, and it's interesting. Your your next artist probably kind of has a foot in both the old and the new wave camps. So you've chosen uh, Heat Treatment by Graham Parker and The Rumor. Tell us why. Uh, I I can't remember when I first heard them. It was probably on the radio, and I really liked them. I was uh, you know one of these guys that a lot of um, my friends' big brothers' record collections influenced what I liked. So there was uh, there was one friend. He lived in a village called Chapleton and uh, his big brother was a massive uh, Van Morrison fan. Mm-hmm. So we just used to listen to Van Morrison all the time and he also was a big Bruce Springsteen fan. But I think Springsteen maybe at that point had 
I don't know if Born to Run had been released or had just been released. So there were those kind of early records. It was more like the ones before that that I really listened to, to be honest. And I kind of got a massive Van Morrison influence when the, in the Bruce Springsteen records, I think, for me. Yeah. And um, and then when I heard Graham Parker in the rumour, I thought, well, that just sounds like Springsteen or you know, Van Morrison to a certain extent. Uh, and... You know, I suppose they were part of that whole pub rock thing, which was the initial precursor to punk, you know, with Dr. Feelgood and bands like that. So, yeah, I really I really liked the, the rumour, you know. Um, I remember seeing them at the Apollo, a great live band. Um, oh, you did see them. I was going to ask you that because I, I, I never managed to see them. I heard they were fantastic live. Yeah, I mean, they're the yeah. type of band it would have been amazing to see them in a venue, you know, a ballroom venue like the, the Barrowlands. You know, uh, but they were just a really slick, great rock and roll band, really. And why the why the song? Well, I think um, I think it was the heat treatment. I can't remember. I think that was the second album, maybe. Um, and I think yeah, I bought that one first. Two, two records in '76, didn't they? So yeah, his debut record, and then he did heat treatment after that. Yeah. yeah. So was it Howling Wind? I think was maybe the first one. But I got um, heat treatment, and I think uh, I just put it on uh, the record player and you know it just kind of got me straight away so that was really why I, I kind of selected that track yeah and the band themselves were made up of a couple of other bands from the 70s you talked about that pub rock world and I think um, Brinsley Schwartz had a couple of members come out and into the rumour mm-hmm. um, and obviously Nick Lowe then kind of came out the back of that and he's sort of stiff and all that became part of that sound as well and they were all quite intertwined, weren't they? Yeah, I think particularly, you know, that's good that you mentioned Stiff Records because, you know, that whole pub rock type thing was pretty much what Stiff was, you know, mm. and then they were intelligent, really intelligent the way they sold themselves and they became part of the that new, you know, music, you know. They were kind of effectively pub rockers who kind of get rid of their flares and bought a pair of straight legs, you know, and they... Yeah. Um, but they were, you know, they were great though. That was the thing. They were really great records, and they yeah, stripped it down. Was... They stripped it down. You know, I think they realised well, rock and roll should be stripped down, not overblown like a, you know probably some of the bands in the early or mid seventies were. So the rumour really kind of took it back to basics. I think they did, and as you say, they had that whole um, Van Morrison horn sound thing going on with that. Pa 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 and all yeah, yeah. you know the the kind of soul sound if you want off the the back of the Irish stuff yeah um and that was quite unusual certainly in the pub rock world I'm guessing there wouldn't have been a lot of other bands doing that yeah um, well it was very soul influenced because they did you know they they they, they covered some soul tracks you know like an Anne Peebles track and a you know hold back the night they did a version of that as well so they were really influenced by the kind of Stax records you know. The soul type records, again, I was only aware of those records from hearing them on the you know the radio, which you know a lot. I mean, radio was radio one was amazing back then because, you know, apart from all the hits, there was loads of you know disco songs, but there's loads of soul tracks that were never off the mm-hmm. radio. Soul music, I mean, I love soul music, but it's it's always been massive in the west of Scotland, and it was it was always in the charts, it was always in the radio, you know. So it wasn't like some obscure subcult called soul music, you know, it was like, it was mainstream. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you mentioned that whole back in the night there, that was the first 
song I heard of Graham Parker because I think that was maybe came out maybe the year later. Uh-huh. Um, and I didn't realise it was a, co- a cover. One of the recurring things that we've been doing on the podcast is that, you know, you, you, you learn by hearing bands you like covering something and then you go back the way to the the original. And this was another one that um, I heard and then found out it was a Tramp song mm-hmm. and, you, you know, you kind of disco and all the other things that are, that are in there. So it's... Um, it's interesting how they all, you know, they all kind of fuse together over a, a certain period of time, but you've still got the the layers of the original and then the covers, and you know, and sometimes the covers are arguably better than yeah, than the original, definitely. yeah, which definitely. is which is some achievement. And the other thing I picked up was you mentioned the Springsteen element, and they ended up uh, having sort of Springsteen on one of his records. So I think it was in nineteen eighty when he did up the escalator. Uh, he ended up with Springsteen come on done some backing vocals and they had uh, Danny Federici All right, uh, uh-huh. playing and playing keyboards and organ and stuff there because um, they had that connection as well, which um, probably just validated what you were saying earlier on there about the about the sound and stuff. So I think he got quite the guys that do it. Yeah, I think he got quite big in America, didn't he? Is in terms of like a big kind of touring you know, cult artist. So. Yeah. Absolutely, and his sound did evolve, didn't it? But um, but yeah, it was. You're right. He probably was was bigger than you would give him credit for, um, and stuck it out as well. He was it was around for a, a fair while. Mm-hmm. A lot of those bands came and went, but he um he he tended to to keep doing it, which was fantastic. So um so we'll give it a play. So from the album of the same name, it's it's one of those classic side one track one songs, isn't it? That you you kind of go straight into totally. for an album. It was released in October '76. This is Heat Treatment by Graham Parker and Rumor. So this is a great example of a song that I probably hadn't heard in 20 years, maybe. Because mm-hmm. although I, you hear some Graham Parker stuff, it wouldn't be this. I'd have heard maybe some of these slightly later stuff. Yeah, well, um, well, that's, I mean, I kind of, you know, I've probably got that record somewhere or somebody's nicked it over the years. But, I, you know, I, I just kind of, had I listened to it when I knew I was going to do this, say uh, nineteen, you know, seventy six is the year, and uh, and it totally took me back to it, you know, like that. I was locked back into it, but it's not a record I've listened to for a long, long time. Mm. So uh, yeah, it's great hearing it again. So Douglas, we looked through the best selling singles of seventy six earlier on. So to balance that off, we'll have a wee wander through the critic choices for best albums of the year. So this is a, a bit of a composite of the kind of best of the best. So this is you picking up uh, trade mags and, uh, you know, enemies, sounds, all that kind of stuff. So um, the ones that came out on top of that, we'll see where we get to. So I've got the top 10 here for you. So 10 was, can never pronounce this, Hejaira. All right. Mm-hmm. I'm not, hopefully I got that right. Um, are you, uh, you a Joni fan? I'm not really. And it's, um, no. you you're, you're it's just, uh, it's bad form if you don't like Johnny Mitchell. However, <laughs> that album uh, I do quite like. Uh, there's a great song on that I think called Amelia, which I really like. But um, no, I'm yeah. not not really a Johnny fan. No problem. Uh, nine, a trick of the tail, Genesis. Not a Genesis fan. Here, here. Eight, the Modern Lovers first album, the Modern Lovers. Big fan of the Modern Lovers. Yeah, I, I had a, a squeak. I thought you might have. Um, been getting into that for uh, your selections. I thought that might have sneaked in somewhere. It was, it was in the uh, it was swirling around, but didn't make the cut. Yeah, uh, great, great record. Seven was Desire by Bob Dylan that we mentioned on the bestsellers. 
Um, six just for me was twenty one twelve by Rush. Just for you, yeah. Leslie McLaren will hate me uh-huh. for that, and uh, there's a bit on Leslie's podcast that, that will explain that. Uh, five was Boston debut album Boston. Uh, four was Hotel California, Eagles. Mm-hmm. Eagles fan? No, no, I just just didn't do it for me to be honest. Mm-hmm. I, I like that kind of music, but I probably like you know the um, you know the Buffalo Springfield and those kind of people a bit more. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, what was that? It was four. Three was the debut album from the Ramones. Classic. Two was Station to Station, you'd be pleased to know. And uh, number one was Songs of the Key of Life by Stevie Wonder. Excellent. Uh, we recorded with Stuart Cosgrove recently. Mm-hmm. And uh, Stuart did a bit of a kind of soul review of uh, of the year he picked, which I think was 71. And we got into a chat about Stevie Wonder and uh, Stuart was saying that he actually wasn't a particularly big fan of him until that kind of talking book uh-huh. phase. What was that, about 72 maybe? And then he just smashed it for like four or five years. And yeah. that, that run of records getting to songs in the key of life are just um, unbelievable. So. I think it's you get that thing where artists, for whatever reason, it just becomes like a purple patch. You know, we mentioned Bowie earlier on in the 70s. And I mean, people like Neil Young, they just, it feels like every record's amazing. I think, uh, you know, Stevie Wonder had that that run of records as well. That, and, and Prince, you know, later yeah. had... You know, I just felt like every Prince album was the most defining record in in music at that time. Just that run of, you know, I mean, Parade, I re- that's probably my favourite, but there was about four or five records and they were all fantastic. We've been desperate to get a guest to choose a year from the 80s, Douglas. Mm-hmm. And we, we haven't got one yet. Can you get some younger people on? Well, we've got 96 coming up. Uh-huh, uh-huh. We've actually jumped the 80s and ended right. up in, in, in the Britpop and what have you, so... Um, but yeah, no, you're right. Prince is fantastic. The next ten after that were kind of they were fairly mainstream, but they were good. So, uh, so Thin Lizzy was in there. Uh, ELO, ABBA, Queen. Um, so you know that classic albums, you know, pretty, pretty timeless, I think, and um, overall pretty strong. There's no um, no sort of no disco or anything on on the best of or the best sellers for that matter mm-hmm. for Meller on but uh, but it was about to break through in the UK and your next selection I think is a good example of this so you have chosen Disco Inferno by the Tramps tell us about that yeah it was uh, I kind of remember it being played at discos you know like when you were going to the local disco which in Straven would be in the Ball Green Hall and it was you know uh, yeah so I always thought it was a great, great record. I really love The Tramps, you know, they had so many amazing uh, singles, you know, but their albums are really good as well. And this is a this is a brilliant song. Yeah, fantastic song. So uh, I, I didn't know much about the backstory to it. Uh, this, so the guy who wrote it, a guy called Ron Kersey, or co-wrote it, and um, he's actually quite important because he's one of the producers of Saturday, Saturday Night Fever soundtrack. Mm-hmm. Didn't know that. Which I, I I didn't get there, then that's that's kind of where that connection came in because that ended up on the soundtrack, didn't it? Mm-hmm. And they got a re-release and kind of and, and did very well. So he Ron, his name's actually Ron. Have mercy, Kersey. Yeah, he's probably got probably got the publishing on it as well. <laughs> I'm sure he does. And the the story was that it was partly inspired by uh, the film Towering Inferno. 
Oh, right. <laughs> yeah. Which... <laughs> <laughs> Seems a bit, <laughs> a bit macabre, but uh, yeah, so I think it was that whole kind of energy and, you know, the kind of burning platform and, and all that stuff as well. And, uh, and the recording of it was, because uh, I think they recorded this in Philadelphia, I think, uh, kind of Philly band, and they, were, they had their own kind of house band, didn't they? Mm-hmm. In the kind of Philly, I think, M, uh, MFSB. Yeah. Where the kind of, I think, the kind of equivalent of the Funk Brothers type type idea. Um, and you can hear that, 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 it's that kind of session musician guys just smashing it. Yeah. You With know, yeah, they've got that real thing, a lot of those Gamble and Huff, you know, Philly records where they've got the, you know, the open hi-hat. That That's yeah. really where, it, you know, the Philly sound to me is the open hi-hat, which became a staple of, of disco and, and I suppose moving through to house music as well. Yeah, well, how, well disco was, was probably, I guess it was already pretty big in America, but it wasn't that far away really from from becoming massive in the UK. Saturday Night Fever, I think, was um, 77. Yeah. I think that's when it kind of went overground, wasn't it? You know, and, mm. and I mean, you listen to those disco records, they're just like soul records that are a bit more dance orientated, you know? Yeah, yeah, they are. And they've got, um, yeah, probably got kind of a bit more energy to them maybe than, yeah, yeah, a bit more organised, maybe it's a better word for it, you know? But um, the, the tramps are interesting. I, I didn't, I, I know the band didn't know a lot about them because, because they're still a kind of touring group, if you want, that still tour as the tramps. But uh, even in their pomp, they changed the band members like you would change your socks. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you do a quick kind of Wikipedia check or something on, on a bit of information. There was 32 band members and counting. Oh, really? Yeah. That, but I think that, we talked earlier on one of the podcasts about about that kind of almost like sort of village mentality where, you know, everybody knew each other in the Motown world where they basically had the same mm-hmm. people recording different versions of the same tune and... The, the same bike beat and all this, that stuff. Was this not the time that funk bands, obviously with Parliament and Funkadelic as well, was this not when they did, there was a bit of an overload of musicians on stage? And then, I mean, obviously you're talking about 76 here, but when did all the the, the bands then went to kind of using synths and stuff like that and cutting out a lot of the extra musicians? Was that later? That would be a wee bit after that, I think, but it was not, yeah. not that far after that, actually. no. no. That's a good shout, right. um, and I think the other thing about sorry, mate, dear, the other thing about seventy six, I guess, is that we talked about those um, sort of big selling records and stuff, and people bought a lot of records around that time because obviously the, there wasn't anything else to to buy. Um, there was no digital or you had tape, I guess, but no CDs or anything out at the time, and uh, and, and singles and LPs were everything, weren't they? It was you mentioned earlier, Douglas, about buying the record, and I think it was the Bowie record, wasn't it? And, Rushing home to hear it and uh, and the the album cover and all, all mm-hmm. the other stuff that that goes with that and uh, yeah, I mean, well I mean it was that it was the kind of cultural you know it was like a massive mainstream culture that uh, you know it, it kind of like was where you got your news you know it was where you found out about the co- the counterculture you know was uh, you know not necessarily from disco records of course but in their own way they were you know if you look at the history of disco music and it obviously came out of the you know the gay clubs. And that, so, so it kind of it took a certain type of music and a certain type of lifestyle and it made it more mainstream, you know. So there's, uh, yeah, no, I, I think I think the thing about disco music is it still retains its uh, energy and vitality. When you listen to it now, it's it still feels really, really exciting in terms of, you know, 
you want to go up and dance to it for a start. But it also sounds good as a listening experience. They're, they're great records. Yeah, yeah, they are, mate. They're absolutely fantastic. And this one uh, did very well, actually. It got to number one in the Billboard dance charts in America when it came out the first time. And then when it came out through Saturday Night Fever, it ended up recharting in the mainstream charts as well, both UK and, um, and America. So, as you say, it went from that underground to to, to overground, which, um, yeah, fair play to them for doing that. Uh, and it, it just snuck in as well, because it was actually released on the 28th of December, 76. So you're, I mean, it's, it's still in the year, isn't it? But it's uh, extra time almost, it's sneaking in there. <laughs> We've had a few that have, that have stretched the boundaries of the calendar years, Douglas, I can assure yeah. you. Um, that, I, that's, that's not a problem, the slightest. Okay, let's get this one on, because it is a cracker. Um, so this is Disco Inferno by The Tramps. This is one thing about growing up um, in United Music post-punk because I just assumed that people didn't actually like all different styles of music. I thought when you, back before punk, you, you liked one type of music, you know, and stuck with it. But by the time I was, obviously, well, I went through the kind of alternative C86 thing, but by 1990, I was listening to Soul and Disco and it just became classics, you know. And, you know, everybody I knew who was into music was like that. So it's in, it's, I find it quite interesting when people are talking about years prior to you know, the mid-80s. Well, Douglas said earlier there that, um, you know, you always had a very eclectic taste, Douglas, yeah? Yeah, I mean, I did, but I, I totally understand what McDee's saying because it, it felt, you know, you were kind of pigeonholed a bit like, you know, because punk was a big thing for me. So suddenly, you know, all your pals thought you should only listen to punk records. I mean, the only reason I had an eclectic taste was because I listened to John Peel. I mean, I, or I listened to you know, Radio 1, the charts, the charts were eclectic, yeah. you know, but John Peel, Sorry. I know, just, just you, you know, John Peel, you know, it's like, you know, techno track, an old blues track, Public Image Limited, a soul track. And you're just and and dub dub was the first time I really heard you know people so it kind of really uh, you know you, you know what it's like me do you just listen to people and you get influenced by them. Well, interestingly, when I was a wee boy, you know, like I used to tape the charts on a Sunday, and then that got, that then became a tape John Peel. So anyone in session, I've I've still got cassettes under the house which probably wouldn't play now, but I've got Primal Scream, Soup Dragons, and there was that other stuff that crept in there, like the Bundu Boys and stuff that. Probably would never yeah. have listened to otherwise. So, yeah, radio was a, and it never it's never stopped you buying the records either. You know, no, it can actually made you buy the yeah. records or yeah. encourage you to buy the records. You would hear it, and because you couldn't hear it on demand, you know, you would hear uh, like the Bundu Boys, for example. And if you thought I like that, the only way you're going to hear it again is by going and buying the record. Yeah. So, you know, definitely encouraged. Uh, most folk to go and buy the records. Did you ever do a peel session yeah, in any uh, band? Yeah, yeah, I did two with the Secret Goldfish, and I was, um, I kind of was there roading with um, Bourgeois Bourgeois when they did their peel right. sessions. So, uh, I, well, peel was amazing because he, he did, um, you know, normally you'd made a veil, uh, you know, you just going to do the session and you don't obviously meet peel, but he did a, a fifth anniversary of Creeping Bent and he did it as a live programme from Made of Ale. So he was there playing the records and, you know, a couple of bands played and he was, you interviewed me and stuff like that. So he was, yeah, he. I mean, that was amazing for me. That was the biggest 
trip ever because I was yeah. a massive fan of just listening to different music and then for him to suddenly uh, really get behind Creeping Bent was fantastic. Yeah, here, here. And was he, did he have a bit of a disco toe tapping bone in his body? I don't remember a massive amount of disco sneaking no, in. No, can't remember no. that much uh, disco on Peel, but well, you know, latterly when, when techno happened in house. Yeah. Totally, you know. But, but maybe not the Tramps. Maybe not the Tramps. No. Can't no. remember maybe hearing the Tramps on Peel. We are a broad church. That that was the tramps with them um, with Disco Inferno, and as well as the musical styles, that that brings a memory back for me of having a bubble perm, uh, in seventy seven probably maybe seventy eight I think. Mm-hmm. But, um, but everyone had them with that kind of music at the time, didn't they? So that's um, that's my excuse, and there's a few pictures to to go with that. So you didn't have a bad, uh, didn't have a bad uh, haircut as a teenager. You never you never experienced being a teenager. You've got to be able to look at old yeah, photos and go. I used to have a spiky mullet, for example, but you'll never see a photo of that on Facebook. Oh, I'm not sure. <laughs> they, they always come out eventually, don't they? Your your mums or your sisters or somebody always drags a few out. So, um, I just them all. Yeah, that's all part yeah, of exactly. growing up. Absolutely. And a uh, big change of musical direction with your next selection, Douglas. So from disco to absolutely not disco. Uh, tell us about Captain Beefheart. Uh, Captain Beefheart, I remember seeing him on, I used to watch the old grey whistle test as most other people did. And, you know, truth be told, it was a bit like Top of the Pops. It was a bit boring most weeks. But then you would have uh, things like, you know, I saw a sensational Alex Harvey band on on the whistle test. But I remember seeing uh, Beefheart and, you know, you know, now the band that he played with on uh, the whistle test are, not regarded highly by Beefheart fans. They don't call them Magic Band, they call them the Tragic Band, because it was all session guys. But Beefheart was just so magnetic. I remember watching him and going, you know, what's that? You know, it just was really got me. And he was, again, someone that you hear on John Peel quite a lot. So I, yeah. I totally got into him, you know. Yeah, absolutely. So he had um, he had a kind of backstory with Zappa, didn't he? They knew each other from way back. And then their kind of lives and their musical careers intertwined mm-hmm. quite a lot. And Zappa, Zappa argues that he gave him a lot of leg ups. Mm-hmm. Beefheart's maybe not quite seen it like that. You know, he he sort of has a slightly different view. But um, but they were both sort of ploughing new directions for for music. Um, certainly late sixties and into the early seventies. And Beefheart kind of came from nowhere, didn't it? We had a couple of his original records mm-hmm. um, that came out, and then he, I guess, kind of. As you said, kind of couple of albums and stuff in the seventies, and maybe maybe weren't quite there. And then he comes back with the the kind of the, the album that that you're talking about now, or the track you're talking about. And even then, there's a bit of an issue, isn't there, with the the recording and when it comes out and stuff. Yeah, it was. You know, I, there was always a kind of. I think Beefheart was one of these guys that maybe signed about three different contracts with three different record labels and <laughs> felt everybody was against them. Uh, so there was there were all sorts of. Um, financial or legal difficulties I think so there was an album recorded that uh, I think Zappa had fronted and they all fell out so the album never quite got released as it was meant to when it was meant to get released but it did eventually come out and it was uh, yeah, it was great stuff So the, the original album was Batchin Puller mm-hmm. uh, which is a track you've picked I think did they then do some of that for 
his next contract. I think he went to Warner or somewhere, and yeah. some of those strikes ended up in Shiny Beast. I think a couple of years later. I think they redid them. I think they had had to re-record them. Right. them. But yeah, they were on on Shiny Beast, and and some of the the songs again filtered out on other future albums. And then he ended up putting the album out as it was intended to be. That also came out, didn't it, later on? Yeah, uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah. Um, but he's never quite, you know, he's one of those guys that two forward, one back, and, uh, yeah, you know, I, he's... I don't think he made life easy for himself, you know, and, and I think the, <laughs> you know, the thing with Zappa that was, um, you'll probably Trout Mask Replicas, the big album that people uh, relate to with, with Beefheart because it's such a dividing point, you know, it's a really extreme album. Uh, and that was Zappa that allowed that to come out. You know, Zappa financed that and Zappa had a label, but I think it was through Warner. So he managed to get it properly released. And uh, and it's, you know, it's, a, it's an avant-garde piece of music, really. Mm. But, um, but I, I really love Trout Mask Replica, but even people that, uh, you know, friends have got that are into left field music it's too much for some of them and i keep trying to say to them look just just think of it as cartoon music as tom and jerry music you know it's uh because every kid all my kids absolutely loved trout mask replica but and i can yeah. i can understand why it just sounds like music that you would have in a cartoon you know it's, it's funny you say that I, um, I was reading that it's matt groaning's favorite record he yeah. says it's the greatest record of all time uh-huh that's right yeah first time he heard it he thought he'd put it on backwards Aye. It was so, you know, it was so wrong. He says, you know, there was everything was wrong with it. But Aye. well, it is one of those, you know, you know, I had to make myself like it, you know, it was because I like Beefheart, but I like probably the big album for me with Beefheart's an album called Clear Spot, which was, you know, uh, you know, it was kind of half his sort of Beefheart manic blues stuff, and half it was quite soulful. It's quite a good mix, uh, you know, but Trout Last Replicas totally out there and uh, I had to really try and you know listen to it give it a chance why do people think this is good I don't quite get it but after about you know three or four lessons I, I totally and utterly got hooked into it so it's uh yeah I mean I think Beefheart was just one of these musicians you just you knew there's no way that that type of music would ever have a mainstream appeal but at the yeah. same time you know he would have tracks that were probably you know, maybe the more popular tracks they had, most people would get it and would like it because it was, you know, it was pretty, pretty amazing stuff. And one of the folklore stories about um, Trout Mass Re- Replica was that they recorded the body of it in four hours and in sort of one session. Because mm-hmm. it was a double album, wasn't it? Yeah, but that's because yeah. they, they, you know, it was almost like a cult. They all lived with Beefheart. They all lived that's in the right. one house and he had them, they were drilled. So they yeah. just went to the studio and played it. <laughs> And it's intricate. It's a really intricate record, and he just, yeah. you know, they just blasted it out. But um... Mark Riley, we talk about the. Sorry, I was just going to say, Mark Riley was talking about him a few weeks ago, and I might have picked this up wrongly, but it was you know an absolute. Can I say bastard? Did he not treat his band really badly yeah. in the studio? Was that not a part of the? Yeah, he was an absolute tyrant. That's you know, and. And uh, that's what you meant to say, tired. But and he and, and nobody got any credits, you know, no writing credits, no nothing. And I uh, know, I mean, I think that side of things is just a bit, uh, you know, it's a bit difficult to bear that. I think um, Mark Riley made, yeah. might have made a comparison between Captain Beefheart and Marty e. Smith, but don't quote me on that. Yeah, he did. I mean, 
I've done done uh, quite a few sessions for for Riley, and quite often, uh, you know, if I'm down with the sexual objects, with you know, with David Henderson, him, you know, we're all into beef heart and you know Marcus as well. So he does have that kind of comparison thing, and he did he did talk to us one time uh, about how he he did view the similarities between you know Marky Smith and the way it's been reported that Beefheart dealt with his musicians. Yeah, and there's a connection. You mentioned Peel earlier on there, and he did the documentary on Beefheart for BBC. Yeah. A bit later, maybe, in 97 or something like that. And uh, and again, I remember seeing that kind of at the time, and most of that was new to me. Uh-huh. I mean, I knew who he was, but I, I certainly wouldn't have been able to call out much of his um, his backstory. And he was, he was a fascinating character, and there was a bit in the... They talk about that stop-start career curve, and one of the stories was they got a spot on the Monterey Festival in 67. I'm not even sure he had a record out. I think his first record was coming out about that time. They managed to get a spot, which is quite a big thing. And you probably know this one where he was doing the warm-up gig before it, and they were playing, is it Electricity? Uh-huh. Uh, and sort of start the song, and they're playing away and stuff, and a minute or so into it, he, he freezes on the front of the stage, straightens his tie, then walks off a 10-foot stage and lands on his manager. Uh-huh. Right? Never to be seen again. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the ba- the rest of the band just kept playing because they didn't know what he'd do. And he later claimed, I've just checked this here, he later claimed that he'd seen a girl in the audience turn into a fish with bubbles coming out from her mouth. Mm-hmm. And that made him fall off the stage. Don't take acid on stage, that's the thing. I think we're talking <laughs> about here. Yeah, because I, I, pe- yeah, I think Ray Sorry, Cooder was... I think Ray Cooder was involved at that time and he's he was like that's it i'm out of here i'm not in the magic band anymore see you later because uh, he's in the documentary I, again i didn't know right Cooder was, was in the band and he's in the documentary talking mm-hmm. about it and uh yeah it's fascinating there's a there's a great john peel quote just to, to sort of uh, bookend that so he says of trout, Mar- trout mask replica if there had been anything in the history of popular music which could be described as a work of art in a way that people who are involved in other areas of art would understand, then Trout Mask Replica is probably that work. I would agree with that. That's um, that's tipping your hat, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And the only other thing I picked up, uh, that's really interesting, because again, I, I, I had to go back and dip into a bit of this, was that he almost signed to the uh, alternative Apple label that McCartney and Lennon were forming, which I think was called Zappo. That's right, yeah. That was all good to go, and uh, Beefheart was was lined up to be their kind of signature um, artist, and then your man came in, didn't he, Alan Klein, and oh, really? Kai it all. Yeah, right, I didn't that know was when that. Apple were, were losing money for fun, and uh, uh-huh. he said, no more labels, you know, you can't make one work, why would you uh-huh. do another one? Yeah, and uh, that'd been really interesting, because he, he knew them, I think they were both big fans of his um, his music because they were kind of quite into that avant-garde stuff. Yeah, I mean, I know I know McCartney was really into, you know, avant-garde and I know that I know Lennon had, you know, one of the earlier Beefheart albums. So, yeah, I can see that now, but that would have been mm. amazing, actually. Wouldn't it just? I uh, can see Yoko Ono in there somewhere, couldn't you? She, could, she would definitely work in the Magic Band. That would be no problem. <laughs> I'm amazed she wasn't in it, to be fair. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so uh, so we'll get this one on. So from the album of the same name, it was recorded in 76, but it was released in full as his first posthumous album in 2012. This is Captain B-Fat and the Magic Band with Bat Chain Puller.
Hello there, and our conversations around Captain Beefheart takes us to the end of part one of our 1976 music podcast chat with Douglas McIntyre. Hope you've enjoyed it so far. If you want to listen to part two, that is also now available on Apple. Um, search using Over a Garden Wall or find us on the Apple link. Stay safe. Enjoy.